Dear Father, as we come before you, uh, truly we pray today as we do every day that you will guide us, shape us and mould us into your people. We pray that we will come to your word with a sincere desire to want to know it and obey it and to please you and glorify you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, okay, I know that uh, some of you are very good students and uh, you know it humbles me somewhat to say that actually I wasn't a very good student when I was growing up. So uh, December was always a very difficult time for me because December was when I always used to get the letter to tell me how I did for my exams. So unlike some of you who are very good students, you know when you receive your, uh, your, your results in the mail, you're looking for whether I got you know, high distinction or distinction. Uh, I was always wondering whether I was going to pass or fail. Okay? So, I remember when I, when I was waiting in December, I would always have, you can ask my wife, right? I'm a very pessimistic Gyeongsu person, I always have a stack of books. And she always said, what do you need all these books for? I said, oh, I think these are the subjects that I might have to do my retest on, you see. So, what happens is you get your exam results, and if you do happen to fail, uh, one of the positive things that can actually happen is, you fail by not very much. And if you don't fail by very much, uh, I, my university was very generous and they would offer you a re-exam sometime uh, before the term started. Okay, and uh, I'm sad to say I had to do one or two in my lifetime. But the worst thing that you can ever get, the worst letter that you can ever get in the mail is a letter which tells you that you failed the subject so badly that you failed. But worse than that, you failed so many subjects that actually you have to show cause why you don't have to do the whole year again. Right? Or maybe you fail so many subjects and so many times, the university will actually write you a letter and say, please write us a letter of appeal to let us, to, to let us know why you should still continue to be at university at all. Okay? Now, uh, unfortunately, I have uh, some friends of mine who receive letters like that. Now, as we come to the, uh, to the book of uh, Revelation, we've been looking at the, the letters to the churches. And I think that as we come to the last three letters, the church of Sardis, the church in Philadelphia, and the church in Laodicea, the first church, the church in Sardis, is a bit like that. It is like a show cause letter. So if you look at this map, we've been uh, going through the different churches where uh, Jesus has been writing to his people. And you can see that uh, Sardis here is here, okay? <coughs> and of all the letters, it is the most negative letter of all that has been written. Uh, as the commentators say, there is basically nothing good uh, that is written about this church. Uh, at its heart. And that's why I say it's like a show cause letter. And if you begin uh, in verse chapter 3, verse 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, uh, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And here, it's not a contrast of being um, physically alive and physically dead. It's talking about spiritually dead and spiritually alive. And here, basically, uh, Jesus is speaking to his church and saying, look, you have a reputation, maybe to yourself, right? you're a legend in your own mind, or maybe to other people that you're alive, but you're spiritually dead. And I think that the first thing I want to mention here, uh, actually, you can preach just on this, uh, this verse itself, isn't it? Is that at the heart of it, in your Christian walk, as an individual and as a church, it really doesn't matter uh, to some degree, uh, uh, within limits, what other people think. It doesn't matter what uh, your friends think about your Christian world. It doesn't matter what your other people think of your Christian world. It doesn't matter what the people think of your church. Because, at the end of the day, reputation doesn't matter. That's what it says here, isn't it? They have a reputation of being alive. 
But the only uh, person's opinion that matters is Jesus. Right? Jesus. When you think about it, that's all that counts in your Christian life. Whose opinion matters? It is Jesus' opinion of your Christian life. It's not what other people think. It is what Jesus thinks. And he says here that the reason why Jesus' opinion matters is because he is the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Uh, I presume he holds it in his hands, right? Now, there are no seven Holy Spirits. Uh, We've been saying in the book of Revelation that seven is uh, a symbolic number, which means perfection of fullness. And uh, what he's saying is Jesus holds the perfect Holy Spirit, the completed Holy Spirit in his hands, and he holds also the seven stars. It means he holds the future or the destiny of the seven churches. So I want you to ask yourself, why do you spend your time trying to impress people uh, or trying to you know, give a, get a good reputation? Because at the end of the day, do they hold the Holy Spirit in their hands? No. Do they control the destiny of your church? No, they don't. The only person that matters is Jesus. And Jesus is not interested in reputation or what you do on the outside. The reality is, we're pretty good at putting on a good front to people. We can act in front of people. We can fool people. Right? We have this shop front mentality. You know, you, you go to the shop and you put a nice uh, shop front. But Jesus doesn't care about reputation. He wants to know the reality. What is behind that shop front? And that's why if you look at the, each of the churches, he keeps saying, I know your deeds, I know your deeds, I know your deeds. So that's why you need a Bible. In verse 1, in the church of Sardis, he says, I know your deeds. Verse 8, to the church in Philadelphia, I know your deeds. Uh, to the church in Laodicea, verse 15, I know your deeds. Jesus doesn't need to know your reputation. He needs to know what is the reality of your Christian faith. So, as you look at your own life, is your life spent trying to create a reputation in front of people? Or do you really have a, re- a, real, a, real, a real faith that Jesus is impressed with? Now, as you come to this church, the church in Sardis, what exactly is the problem? Okay, what is, why is there such a, a problem between reputation and reality? Well, I think the clue comes when we look up in, uh, in verse 4, isn't it? If you look at me in verse 4, right? Look at what it says in verse 4. So, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Now, <coughs> we know that uh, there is a reputation in this church for being alive spiritually, but he says there's only a few people who are really alive spiritually. And what marks out these few people who are alive in Jesus' eyes? The fact that they have not soiled their clothes. Now what does that mean? Okay, here I have a, my nice blue shirt, right? Not soiled, no, no, there's no dirt. Okay, I've been playing rugby in it. But what Jesus is saying is, the, the clothes that you wear, your spiritual clothes can be soiled by sin, by doing bad things, evil. It's the same word that's used other, in other places of the Bible. Look up here. Okay, the same word, soil, okay, is used in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4. These are those who did not defile or stain or soil themselves women, for they kept themselves pure. Uh, they followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. Okay, so the idea of soiling is being tainted. 
or, or contaminated by sin, right? By by uh, prostitution or sexual morality here or, or in other ways. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it's the same idea. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates or, or stains body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Okay, now once we understand what stain means, we have the idea that this church has a reputation of being spiritually alive, but they are dead because most of them, most of them are stained with sin. They are spiritually compromised by sin and wickedness and evil, most probably uh, because they are compromised with the world around them. Okay, that's why the idea of being stained by the world, contaminated by the evil uh, that is around them. And I think that as a Christian, when we understand what the rest of the Bible says, it's very clear. Because Christians, we live in the world, but that we are not of the world. Right? We live in the world, but we are of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the problem is, as Christians, we don't think in a Christian way many times. <coughs> Excuse me. So you look at the next slide. Uh, is, is, is that? Can you see that? You can't see that, huh? Why can't you see that? I can see that perfectly well. But uh, okay, this is a um, a state uh, some statistics that I got from this book, uh, which was very helpful. I bought it a long time ago, which was compiled in Australia uh, from all the different denominations of every church, and it, it basically. Uh, tries to um, break down by statistics uh, the different characteristics of churches. And here in this church, um, they, uh, they, they compile these statistics, if I can find it, about churches which are growing fastest. Okay, the fastest growing churches in Australia, what are the characteristics of these churches? Okay, so number one, uh, the strength of relationship is uh, 8.4, right? meaning that that's the Strongest correlation of all the churches. So, congregations are moving in new directions. Okay, those churches will usually grow. Um, high levels of new residents in the congregation. Okay, uh, serious conflicts with negative outcomes. No, that, that's not. That's what uh, churches which don't have serious conflicts with negative outcomes. They will be growing fast. Attenders committed to the leader's vision of the future. Growing sense of belonging. Uh, leaders' emphasis on outward-focused roles. Openness to new initiatives. Changes in attendance lives, zero of faith, so, so on and so forth. So here on this list, I have 15, they, they counted 15 uh, points of churches which are growing really fast. These, these churches have a reputation for being spiritually alive. But you see, at the end of the day, <coughs> in Jesus' eyes, these 15 points are irrelevant. Irrelevant. Right? Because if this church in Sardis could have all 15 of these points. They could have a reputation of being alive and spiritually growing. But Jesus says, those things are garbage to me. What really counts is whether you live a faithful, obedient life. Because if you are growing really fast, if you are doing all these things, but you are still tainted and stained with sin and compromised with the world, then you are dead to Christ. And I think that that's a very important point for us as Christians because we can be so much living in this world and attracted and, and compromised by the sin of this world that we think we are spiritually alive but we actually did. So think for yourself 
for a moment. Are you living a life that is distinctively sinless, righteous, obedient to Jesus, or are you compromised and sinful and living as part of this world? So I remember one pastor gave this a good illustration. I think it's true, although no animals have been hurt in this illustration. But he was saying that if you get a frog, right, and you throw the frog into a pot of boiling water, uh, the frog will jump out of the pot. But if you get a frog and you put it into cool water and you slowly turn up the heat, uh, the frog will just keep staying in the water until it boils to death. I believe that sounds logical. I don't know. I haven't tried the experiment. Okay? But, but you're saying that's what Christians can become like, isn't it? We live in this world and we're saturated by the media and the thinking of this world. That over time, we slowly get boiled to death in the world's values, but we still think that we are spiritually alive before God. And I think that that's a very important point that we're being uh, challenged with, isn't it? When you look at your spiritual clothes, are you stained with sin? Are you soiled with the values of this world? So what does Jesus say in response to this church? Next slide. He says to them five things, okay, five imperatives, five commands. Wake up, okay, first instruction, okay, wake yourself up from your stupor, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So you wake up and you strengthen what is remaining. How do you strengthen that? You remember what you have received and heard, so you go back to the word, right? you go back to the gospel, obey it and repent. Right, so there's a process here, isn't it? that you are actually asleep, you're slowly drifting along with the world, but then you wake up and you find yourself going the wrong direction. You wake up, you strengthen, you go back to the Word and you move back towards what the Bible is telling you. Okay, so I, I put it in a picture, picture format here, right? Okay, so here you are, you realize that you've been drifting along towards the world, you're compromised, you're sinful, you're stained, and then you wake up. He said, okay, I've got to strengthen. How am I going to strengthen back to Jesus? By remembering the gospel and by obeying what the gospel tells me, going back to the word. That's why it says, remember. Remember what you've received and are in the process of losing because you are compromised with the world. And in verse 5 and 6, Jesus says that those people right, who come back to him and, and have not saw their clothes and are going to live a righteous life before him, he says, he who overcomes... Will, be like, will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, it's almost like it's a contradiction, isn't it? Because here am I, I live without staining my clothes. But then, at the last day, Jesus said, okay, because you've lived without staining your clothes, I will give you new clothes, white clothes, clothes of complete righteousness. And on that last day, you will see that your, your name is not blotted out from the book of life. Now, um, <coughs> remember the book of Revelation is symbolic. I, I don't know whether there's really some book somewhere, some divine ledger, right? And you open your thing and your name is here. But it's a symbolic thing to say that, you know, if you don't buck up and pay attention, your name can actually be taken out of the book of life. And I think that's a very, very important point for us because there's a dangerous teaching 
that many uh, churches today give, especially prosperity churches, who say, look, once you're a Christian, you're always a Christian. It doesn't matter how you live. You can get divorced 10,000 times. You can live in sexual morality. But you are, grace is going to be so strong to keep you in there. But that's not true, isn't it? Because the church, the letter to the church of Sardis is a show cause letter. It is like saying, this is your last chance. If you don't wake up, you'll be dead and your name will be blotted out from the book of life. And I like uh, what this commentator said in this book. Uh, very powerful words. This guy called Ben Witherington. It says, It speaks harshly to so-called Christian prophets who eagerly advocate assimilation to an alien ethos as something compatible with Christian faith. It also speaks a word of warning to the unthinking mass of Christians who simply want to share in the economic fruits of Babylon's wealth and luxury and are quite willing to assimilate in order to reap temporal benefits. Okay, so I think that at the end of the day, we must see that you have a choice to make. You either choose to live as a Christian or you choose to live as part of this world. And Jesus will not allow you to straddle both things. You either choose to put your allegiance to God or to the world. And as we look at this passage, the, ch- the challenge for us is, where are you right now? Are you living for the world? Or are you living for Jesus? Is, are you living for reputation or reality? Are your clothes stained? Or are they clean? Because if they are clean, and you are living for Jesus, then you receive the white clothes of righteousness, and your name will be in the book of life. Now the next church that we look at, is the church of Philadelphia. Now, it's interesting because we go to a church from a, with a great reputation in Sardis to a church in Philadelphia which really doesn't look like it has uh, much going for it at all. Very poor reputation if you think about it. And in verse 8 it says, <coughs> I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this church uh, obviously doesn't have a, a good reputation because it's got little strength. Uh, some translations say that it's very weak. Right? It's, it's a weak church, little power. Now what does that mean? Uh, it could mean that it is a small congregation. could mean that uh, it was poor materially. could mean that it had very little social standing. Or maybe just that the people there were very tired. I remember one pastor said, it's like a car. Right? Petrol is very low. You know, running on empty. Now why is that? Why was this church having little strength? Well, historically, uh, if you look at this map again, okay, Philadelphia is here. We know that uh, in this place, Philadelphia, historically, it was a place of a lot of pagan influences. A lot of temples in this city. Uh, it was named the Little Athens. Because there's so many temples there. But when you look at the passage, interestingly enough, it is not the pagan uh, society which is causing them problem, but it is the, the Jews. The Jews are causing these people problems. In verse 9, it says, I will make those who are the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, but they are, though they are not, but are lies, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So what is happening here? is that the Jews uh, in this city presumably are persecuting the Christians. Um, They are expelling them from the synagogue. 
And actually the Jews in the past could cause a lot of troubles for Christians because by dissociating themselves from the Christians, it allows the Christians to be persecuted by the Romans because they are no longer under the protection of uh, the Jewish religion. Because in the ancient world, the Jews were allowed to worship their own God. But Christians, once they didn't fall under the umbrella of the Jews anymore, uh, would be forced to worship the emperor. But, even though in this church, they are weak, they have little strength, no power, bad reputation, Jesus praises them. Right? Jesus says that they have, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And basically those two things, kept my word, not denied my name, means that they are obedient to Jesus. They, they, they listen to what Jesus tells them to do and they do it. They have kept, not denied my name, means that they are willing to stand up and say, look, I'm a Christian. You can persecute me, you can hurt me, but I'm still willing to say that I will stand with Jesus. And there are two promises there. Because they are faithful and that they are obedient. The first comes in uh, 7 to 8, isn't it? He says there, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Now what does that mean, the keys of David? Hmm. Which David is he talking about? Uh, must be King David. Right? King David. And he says, I hold the keys of David. Uh, why does Jesus hold the keys of David? Uh, is it in safekeeping? No, right? See, uh, these are my keys to my house. Okay, And uh, if you hold my keys, what does that give you power to? My house, right? You can open Andrew's kingdom, Andrew's house, okay? My, my castle or whatever. And that's what, that's what this picture was. Jesus says, look, I hold the keys of David and I can let you come into King David's kingdom. So look, it doesn't matter whether the synagogue lets you into, you know, recognizes you or persecutes you because the, the Jews would think if anybody goes to King David's kingdom, it would be the Jews. But Jesus says, no, I'm the one who gives you entry into King David's kingdom. And I think, again, it comes back down to what we said in the church of Sardis, isn't it? You don't need to impress other people. The only person that you need to impress is Jesus Christ. Because He is the one who has the keys to the kingdom. Why do you need to impress anybody else? Do they have the keys to heaven for you? No. Only Jesus has the keys to heaven, the keys to the kingdom. So, <coughs> I have a colleague of mine, <coughs> excuse me, um, and uh, he's a pastor in Malaysia, and he's a, he's a very nice guy, very humble man, and he has faced in his last 10 years of ministry in Malaysia a lot of hardship, a lot of hardship. Uh, I'm really thankful that I've never faced the hardship that he goes through, Really thankful for BTPC, right? But he, you know, he works for a denomination in, in Malaysia. And I remember he visited me to stay with me many years ago. And he woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning because he was so stressed all the time. Because in his denomination, the people were very liberal and they kept you know, trying to put pressure on him to change his obedience to God's word. 
And then now, uh, over the last few years, he's a Chinese man. He's been put in charge of a Tamil congregation in, in, in KL. Right? Because basically they're just marginalizing him. They don't give him all the good spots. They give him the difficult work. But then at the end of the day, if you believe what uh, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, it doesn't matter what his denomination says, it doesn't matter what the, the leaders say to him, it is what Jesus thinks of him. And Jesus says to him, you know, well done, because you have kept my word, you've been obedient to the word, and you've not denied my name. I think that's a very important lesson for us. It doesn't matter what other people think of you, it's what Jesus thinks of you. The second promise comes in verse 11 to 12. It says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on him my new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, again, very symbolic language, right? Uh, we're given the crown of life, okay? But he says that we are, we are made into a pillar, and, uh, and uh, it says that you will write on him the name of God, the name of the city of God, and the name of Jesus. Now, if you don't uh, think of it symbolically, it's going to be quite weird, right? Because you're going to be spending the rest of your life standing perfectly still as a pillar in heaven. Okay? And you're going to have these henna tattoos on your forehead, on your forearm and the other bicep or whatever. Okay? But here we have a metaphorical picture, right? Because, you know, a pillar is something that you... Uh, is permanent structure. If you ever done any renovation, you know, you can knock down the, the false wall but you can never ever knock down the pillar of your house or your HDB flat because not the whole thing will come crumbling down on you. So the promise here is that Jesus says you will be a pillar in the temple of God. That means you will, be in the, you will never be taken out the, of God's presence of God's temple. And if you have these tattoos on you, uh, it shows that you belong to God. Uh, in the book of Revelation, who you belong to is very important. Okay, so if you have the name of God written on you, then you will not have the name of Satan 666 on you. Okay? Uh, if you have the name of the city of Jerusalem on you, it means that's where you belong. That's where you're a citizen of. Uh, next slide. Okay. Um, it says in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus has a new name. We don't know what his new name is. But it says that if you believe in uh, overcome, he will give you this new name. He will write this new name on you as well. Now again, this is so important because it gives us a sure picture of the future. Okay. Now I was reading this uh, for my uh, quiet time the other day, this thing by Don Carson, and he made this excellent point. And this is what he said about uh, Christians. <coughs> he says that uh, people, uh, normal people, right, who are not Christians, they live without thinking about the future. Or maybe just five or ten year plans. But Christians are committed in living in a way which anticipates the, the eternal future. 
Okay, so let me repeat that for you. Is which one do you belong to? Do you live for the next five to ten years? Or do you live for the eternal future? Because if you live only for the next five years, then you would try to avoid suffering. Suffering is bad, bad, bad. Pleasure is good, good, good. Enjoyment is very good. But if you live for the, for the eternal future, then the suffering now is not so bad, isn't it? You are willing to hold on. So for us as Christians, you know, when people, uh, when we suffer, we sometimes think, you know, suffering, that's no good, isn't it? Is it, is it good to suffer? So let's say my relatives or my friends mock my faith. Do you feel that that's bad? Do you feel that that's something that's, uh, that's not good? That you should avoid? Well, if you think of the eternal future, then that present day suffering is actually a, a promise that you'll be a pillar for the future, isn't it? Because you are not denying the name of Jesus. You're obeying His word. So when you're working, okay, you're working and your boss says to you, oh, you know, I've decided that I, I want to send you for a course or I want to send you for some uh, night classes. And that, what that will mean is that uh, you will never go to Bible study uh, for the whole rest of the year or never go to church. And you say to your boss, no, 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 boss, you know, I've got to go to church and I'll go to Bible study. And the boss says to you, now, you know, Andrew, that's a career-limiting move. Then you think, well, if you think like the world, you think, that's terrible. Well, yeah, you know, career-limiting, I shouldn't limit my career. I, why should I suffer? But you see, if you're only thinking on the five to ten years, and you think, well, yeah, yeah, maybe suffering is not good. But if you think for the eternal future, then what's the, what's the big deal about suffering for a few years? Or maybe you're a student, and as a student, you decide to take the Sabbath seriously. You know, there's this thing called Sabbath where you're supposed to take a day off every week. And because you take the Sabbath off and you don't do so well in exams, well, then there's suffering, isn't it? And you think, well, maybe I should study really hard because I need to, to really do really well and uh, beat everybody else. But then if you think of the far, far, far future of eternity, then obedience now and suffering for it is actually worthwhile. And that's why Jesus' point is here, isn't it? The promises he gives is that, look, if you hold on now, then these are the things that you will get for eternity. The crown of life. You will be a pillar in the temple. Your name, the name of God, the name of Jesus, the name of the citizenship of God's heavenly city will be written on you. Okay, so the first problem was compromise of the world, soiling your clothes. Second compromise is the avoidance of suffering, isn't it? The avoidance of suffering. We must suffer to keep God's word, so sorry, keep God, Jesus' word and not deny his name. But what about the last church? The last church. Well, very powerful images here. It says in verse 15, I know your deeds, as he knows the other two churches, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now what does that mean? Uh, it literally means that you, Jesus says that you make me sick. Okay, you make me sick. You disgust me. You make me feel like vomiting. Now, I don't, I don't think it's good to mess with uh, 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 Jesus. Uh, if he's, you know, Jesus is a God. Says, I, I, you know, you disgust me. I feel like spitting you out. Uh, those are very, very harsh words to hear. And he says the reason why is because they're lukewarm. Now, uh, cold and hot are uh, very good things to, 
to be when you're a drink, I suppose, or a beverage. So, you know, you think of ice cold Coca-Cola. Okay, if I ice cold Coca-Cola, ice, you know, uh, all that uh, water uh, condensation dripping from the glass, well, that really makes you feel like drinking it, right? Okay? Or maybe, you know, on a cold day, you know, a hot soup, tetare, uh, you know, feels good, right? But you know, imagine, you know, you, you, you get a cup of coffee, you left it on your work table, you got interrupted by a phone call, and then half, another, half an hour, the coffee is still there. You don't feel like drinking it anymore, isn't it? Because the milk all looks a bit funny at the top. It tastes a bit strange. You feel like spitting it out, vomiting it out. And that's why Jesus says, the church is like that. The church in Laodicea is lukewarm and he wants to spit it out. But what does it mean to be lukewarm? Uh, is it just a general term? Right? Why, how are they lukewarm? Why are they lukewarm? I think the key is in verse 17, isn't it? And, and verse 17 actually helps you understand the rest of the problem. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. See, uh, Laodicea, um, if you look at this map, did I put the map anymore? No more maps, huh? Okay, don't worry about the map. <coughs> Laodicea, Laodicea is here, right? <coughs> and um, Laodicea was, was a very wealthy city. Uh, very famous for its clothing industry, wool production, and its banking industry, and also its medical school. Apparently, it was very famous for its eye and ear ointment. Okay? And apparently, it was so rich that in 60 AD, when there was a major earthquake there, they never applied to the Roman government to rebuild the city. They rebuilt the city themselves. That's how rich they were. And that's why they had a reputation of being self-sufficient and self-reliant. And the problem was, the church was also very self-reliant and self-sufficient, and self-confident. That's why it says, I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing. And that's the problem, you see, with wealth. Because with wealth comes independence, and a, and a lack of reliance upon Jesus. See, Jesus says, that in order to have spiritual riches, they cannot be earned, but must only come from Jesus, 100% from Jesus. You cannot earn it, you cannot buy it, you cannot merit it. All of it comes because Jesus gives it to you for, by grace. And that's why the picture of real faith is a little child. A little child. Okay? So you look a little next slide. So Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, uh, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, okay, doesn't mean you take reverse steroids or something, right? But have the attitude of a little child, you will never, never, says there, enter the kingdom of heaven. Luke chapter 18 says, Jesus called the little children to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs as such as these, not because they're small, right? I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. You see, a little child, uh, we have no little children here because they're all in children's church, is totally 100% dependent and reliant upon its parent. You know, it has nothing of its own. Everything comes, and its recognition of everything comes from the parent. Right? Uh, but when we become rich, we are not like little children. We become independent. We feel that we, we deserve it. Uh, we can protect ourselves. We can do things ourselves. We have the power to pay and get things done. And that's why in the, very next, in the very same chapter, in chapter 18, Jesus parallels the little child with the rich young man, isn't it? The rich person. 
So in Luke chapter 18, uh, look what it says there about this rich guy. He, the rich guy wants to get to heaven, and Jesus says, sell everything and come and follow me. But in verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. You see, the rich man is the opposite of the little child. Because the rich man is self-sufficient, independent. That's why it's so hard for him to enter the kingdom of God, because he is proud. He doesn't want to give everything to follow Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, next slide, uh, Paul, the apostle, says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Because when you're rich, okay, uh, we tend to be arrogant. You tend to be proud. Uh, you put your hope in your wealth. Okay, I say this to myself as well, isn't it? As to all of you. I think that all of us are rich by the world's standards. You know, and and we, we come to think of ourselves as... Uh, well, we're so used to, to getting all our stuff and getting things done for us that we think that God is like that too. We don't need to come to Him with any passion. We can do things ourselves. See, and Jesus says that actually their, their, their true spiritual condition is that they are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Uh, that's what it says there in verse 17. You see, the rich person materially is very well dressed and impressive. But the rich person who is self-sufficient and arrogant spiritually looks like the poorest beggar. I want you to think for a moment of the poorest beggar that you've ever seen. Not, not the ones on TV, but the ones that you may have seen in real life. Maybe you know you go to some exotic holiday destination or even some capital city. I, I've seen beggars in Sydney before, right? Imagine what they... Have you, can you picture it? Usually they're drunk. Their hair is very long. They smell. Their clothes are a mess. Their shoes are really broken up. And that's, that's what Jesus says. If you're rich and self-sufficient and independent and not relying and putting your whole trust on Jesus, you are like that beggar, spiritually. And <clears throat> I think that that's a danger for all of us. Yeah, because I think Singaporean Christians are all rich. We, we, in the world's eyes, we are not lacking anything. And it takes off the edge from our commitment to God. Don't you think so? Honestly? So I'm going to use all these illustrations that other pastors say. So that you don't, you don't think it comes from me, okay? So, uh, there was this pastor called Colin Bale, who was a lecturer of mine before, and he said, you know, in his church, when he was growing up, uh, the pastor got all the children, who were, not children anymore, the, the teenagers and those people who were going to the workforce, and got them together into a special group. And uh, he was in the group, and he asked the pastor, why are we coming together? He said, because I realized that this is when I lose most of you. When people move from student life to working life, he said that's when people start dropping out of church. It's not as if they, they say, oh, you know, I don't want to be Christian, but they cool off. That was the word he says. They cool off because the world seeps in, isn't it? They start earning money, and money, the earning of money, and the things that money can buy, become more important than the relationship with God. Do you see that in your own life? The importance of money and the earning of money and the things that money can buy 
becomes more important than your relationship with God. And somebody else, another uh, pastor also said that he went to a missionary conference and there were these uh, Christian leaders from Rwanda and they, were, they had come to this conference but on the way to the conference their bus had been hijacked and they had been asked to step out of the bus and the, the, guy, the people blew up the bus, I don't know what for. But yet, these Rwandan Christian leaders said that they felt that they preferred the danger of Rwanda than living as a Christian in Australia. And they said, why? Crazy, right? Living in a world where people go into your bus and blow it up. Can you imagine your, your you know, you're going to bus, every morning you're going to work, you don't know whether, you know, I'm going to get to work today because the bus is going to be blown up. But he said, because at least when people come into the bus with guns and blow out the bus, you know where the danger is. But he says that when it comes to wealth, money and priorities, it's all around you. It's everywhere, in the magazines, in the television, the movies. And, and, and you get into this culture where you know, the pursuit of money and wealth, these things are really important, but your relationship with God, well, that's not so important. And then another pastor called Andrew Graham. Uh, this one is a bit difficult, right? He says, you know, in his own church, he says, you know, he notices that people are tardy on coming on time on Sunday morning. That wouldn't be us, right? He says, there's a lack of regularity in attendance in Bible study group and church and a lack of seriousness and quiet time. And he says, why is that? He says, is that because we don't think that it's so important? And I think it's about the same, isn't it? Let's say you imagine you have kidney dialysis and you have an appointment to get your, your weekly or monthly kidney dialysis because the dialysis gives you life. Would you be late for that? Would you miss that? No, right? Because that is life for you. But then, in our relationship with God, if we don't put the priority of meeting with God, is it because we don't think it's that important anymore? We don't see that our relationship with Jesus is, is 100%. That He is the one that gives us eternal life. And we're not sincere about sustaining that relationship. So, uh, I've been uh, using this book a lot. This book on temptation. And uh, by this guy, Puritan guy called John Owen. He says that there is a certain rule when a man's heart grows cold, negligent of formal in his duties and the worship of God, either in the matter or the manner of them, uh, okay, and this is different from his former manner, then one temptation or another has laid hold upon him. The world, pride, uncleanness, self-seeking, malice, envy, or one thing or another has possessed his spirit. Grey hairs are here and there upon him, though he does not perceive it. So I think it's true, isn't it? Like sometimes we can just go through the motions. Right? There's, there's a lukewarmness about it. There's a lack of passion. And before you know it, you've already sort of you know, uh, moved away from Jesus. So verse 18 and 20, what does Jesus say? What, what is the, the solution to this? Well, verse 18 he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love are rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So this is the, the spiritual riches are not the same as material riches. They only come through Jesus. Jesus will give you gold, refined fire, uh, which is often the picture in the Bible of a refined life, a purified life. Uh, white garments, the gifts of righteousness, uh, salve, uh, spiritual eyes to see the truth. And he says, look, <coughs> here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, and 
This is a very famous verse, isn't it? It's often used for evangelism. Okay? That Jesus is knocking on the door. But you notice the context is not about evangelism at all. Jesus is knocking on the door of Christians and saying, look, wake up. Right? You're being seduced by the pursuit of material things in the world. Come back to trusting in me alone. Now, there's a very famous picture. Next slide. Can you see that? I hope you can. I, I, this is the, one of the clearest pictures I could get. But it's by this very famous guy called Holman Hunt. I think it's, it's in England somewhere. And it's called uh, The Light of the World, right? So Jesus is there knocking on the door. And, and it's actually based on this passage, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. But the problem is, if you look at this picture, Jesus looks like a very mild person. Okay? Context is wrong. The context of Jesus that the Holman Hunt should have uh, uh, pictured is from chapter 1, isn't it? Jesus should be the guy with the flaming white hair, the blazing eyes, the iron feet, and the sword coming out of his mouth. This is the person who's knocking at the door, and he's not sort of saying, uh, excuse me, excuse me. Right? He's banging on the door, right? He's saying, excuse me, he's banging on the door, and he's calling his people to come back to him. So the question for us is, which side of the door is Jesus on for you? Is he banging on the door, or is he in your, is he in your uh, having supper with you already? Right? Because there's human responsibility here. Jesus is banging on the door, right? Banging on the door, but he will not break down the door to come in to you. You still have to open the door. You still have to turn away from the material things and say, yes, I will trust only in Jesus and follow him 100%. So how do you open the door? Well, the answer is, in, it says that in verse 19, right? Be zealous, be earnest, be passionate and repent. Don't be lukewarm and apathetic anymore and listless and indifferent. Be zealous, be fanatical and repent of your past way of living where you're very comfortable with just you know, cruising along and cool in your faith because you trust in material things. Okay, so in conclusion, uh, I, I had a cousin of mine which I didn't know very well and unfortunately many years ago he died in a car accident. And he was an architectural student, I think, at NUS or something. And he had uh, architectural students, apparently they spent a long time making all their projects, right? So he stayed in university to do his big project. And he came home very early in the morning and uh, he crashed straight into a truck, a watering truck on uh, one of the PIE or ECP, you know those watering trucks? And the police said that it was probably because he fell asleep while he was driving. Because, you know, he was so tired, he was driving on the right lane, and he just fell asleep, or he didn't pay attention, he just straight, straight into the watering truck and, uh, and killed himself. And I think that, as Christians, uh, we can be like that too. You're coming to church, you're going to Bible study, you know, doing all the right things, but you're actually falling asleep at the wheel. You know, you're, like, you're not paying attention, you're falling asleep and you're in great danger. And the question is, is your faith compromised by this world? Now, are you, you know, is your, look at the clothes you're wearing, the spiritual clothes you're wearing. Are they stained and soiled with sin? Because if they are, then you have to wake up. You have to remember God's word and go back to what you, you know, the word tells you and to obey it. Or maybe you're falling asleep at the wheel because your whole life is about avoiding suffering. Like you, you, you're willing to deny Jesus' name and not to obey him. Because you don't like to suffer. You know, because after all, this world tells you that suffering is bad, isn't it? Suffering is bad. But Jesus said, actually, suffering is good. If you suffer for Jesus now, 
you have a certain future. You are the pillar in the temple. God's name is plastered on your forehead. Or maybe you're falling asleep on the wheel because you're so seduced by the material things and the wealth of this world. You are like verse 17. I'm rich, I have acquired wealth and I do not need a thing. Maybe you do not say that outwardly, right? But maybe through your actions, that's what you're saying. I don't really need God anymore because I've got all these things. Well, if that's the case, then we really need to open the door to Jesus. He's banging on the door. So, this is a really big warning for us, I think. The mistake that we make is to say, well, yeah, I know someone like that. Yeah, I know someone out there like that, or my friend, or my church. I know someone else who attends a church just like that, right? But actually, we are the ones who have the ears to listen. And that's why it says, he who has ears, let him, let him hear. So do we have ears on the side of our head? I notice that you all do. But do we have ears in our heart to really take it to heart? Because Jesus says, be ready. I'm coming soon. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see how serious it is, uh, this thing called our faith in the Christian walk. Help us to see how great the dangers that uh, we face. Help us to take with great seriousness the warnings that are given to us and to examine ourselves as a church and as, as individuals and to see that we have not compromised, that we have not stained our clothes with sin, uh, that we are willing to suffer to endure suffering, even great suffering, uh, to obey your word and to not deny the name of your son, Jesus. And most importantly, that we are not seduced uh, by wealth and to think that because we are wealthy and the pursuit of wealth, that we become lukewarm in our faith in Jesus. We pray that you may give us eyes to examine ourselves and ears to hear seriously, and not just forget as we leave, but to examine ourselves with all seriousness, the way that we live, the attitudes of our heart, uh, the spirit of our mind, and to change if necessary. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.